But yeah, I mean, to, to see when the new bikes come out and then to start looking and go, okay, what can we do? You know, what could, what can we, where, where are possible failure points? Where are ways to make uh, somebody's experience with this bike better? You know, and, and our philosophy of motorcycles is, is we know, we know KTM can build a perfect motorcycle, you know, but for who is the question? Yeah. Everyone's different. Right. And so that's the beauty of the aftermarket is, is that the aftermarket gets to allow people to feel like they're a part of the design phase. You know, where I get to customize this and you, you'll get the guys in the forums are like, ah, oh, what are you putting that on for? You You can never, you know, you'll never outride this thing or that's never going to help you. And, I, and those guys drive me nuts because what they're not taking into account is the dopamine release. Coming to you from the heart of America, this is the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. On each episode, we'll talk with industry insiders, experienced adventure riders, ADV creators, and moto fabricators. With a passion for adventure and a penchant for two-wheel travel, we explore the stories of those behind the adventure motorcycle world. On the show today, we catch up with Chris Parker of Rottweiler Performance. Chris, along with his co-owner wife, Marielle, and their dedicated team draw from a rich history in highly competitive motorsports to create precision-made aftermarket performance parts for KTM and Husqvarna motorcycles. The Rottweiler team's motto is Unleash the Beast, and if you've ever added one of their products to your motorcycle, you know that tagline is a perfect fit for this fast-growing company. From its humble beginnings in a 1,300-square-foot shop selling one-off parts by word of mouth to Avrider members, to a manufacturer and global distributor of world-class products, Rottweiler has carved out a big niche for itself in the adventure motorcycle world. We talked with Chris about how he got into the performance motorsports game, how his relationship with KTM has evolved over the years, and how he came up with the name Rottweiler. Speaking of the aftermarket, if you're riding the KTM 790, 890, 1290, or the new Norton 901, give the guys at Bulletproof Designs a call. And get your bike set up and protected. Bulletproof is an industry-leading manufacturer of billet aluminum off-road protection guards and accessories, and their hard parts are purpose-built to protect your motorcycle. Lightweight, simple to install, and made in the USA, all of Bulletproof guards come with a lifetime warranty. Again, Give them a call or check them out at bulletproofdesigns.com. Finally, if you're inclined to want to support this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen so you always get a notice when the latest episode drops. Okay, enjoy this episode with Chris Parker of Rottweiler Performance. Welcome back to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. I'm your host, Matt McFadden, joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Terry Terrell Terrell. I am really excited and pleased to have Chris Parker of Rottweiler Performance on. Chris, welcome to the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. Thank you, sir. I'm happy to be here. Excited. Happy to have you. I first came to, to know of Rottweiler Performance, I think, when I was outfitting my, my KTM 1090 Adventure R and... I think I was looking at the air intake system and I jumped on some forums and, and went down the rabbit hole and people were just raving about the performance and the horsepower and 
the the product quality and uh, you know ultimately I, I I didn't buy it because I went and put that 1090 Adventure R in sport mode and thought this is all the horsepower I, I probably need for now. Shame uh, on but <laughs> I know, but la- but later I became a fan of, of you guys and then ultimately a, a customer of of a lot of your stuff. But but that but that's how I came to to understand it. And now I see you guys everywhere, uh, and and maybe it's because I kind of have you know my KTM glasses on and and I'm a big big KTM guy these days. But um, let we'll get into Rottweiler and KTM in a minute. But let, let's talk about how you got into motorsports uh, and kind of the off road racing scene in, in general. Let's go back a couple decades. Oh boy, how I got into motorsports. I mean, um, you know, going way back when I was a kid, you know. My family knew some other family that was going to Pismo Beach, and they had ATCs and all that. And, and you know, we got into that, and it was a family thing. You know, I didn't really have parents that took me to the motocross track. I wasn't that kid, you know. Yeah. And um, I really took to it. I really, really enjoyed that. I got on that bike, and I remember the first bike I rode was a it was a 1983 uh, Honda ATC 200X with a clutch. And it was a race bike that my dad bought from some. My dad was an airline pilot. And he saw an ad in the uh, captain's quarters for <laughs> somebody was selling one of these things. And it was a full on race 200 X with a twist throttle and clutch and everything. And I'm like 10 years old and <laughs> he stuck me on that thing. And so that was, it was trial by fire, but um, I really, really love those things and just kind of took to it. And, and throughout the years um, I kind of showed a, um, a um, an aptitude for mechanics. Um, mm-hmm. I basically, failed everything in high school. I was actually thrown out of high school my junior year. That's, <laughs> that's about how I got, but the, the only two A's I ever got was uh, ironically art and, and mechanics. Yeah. Um, I, I excelled in those two things. And, yeah. uh, but I, I really got into building them. And then, you know, from then I kind of got into quads as a kid and started building, you know, and I, I, the dichotomy for me, you know, was kind of between building them and writing them. I wasn't sure which one I really enjoyed more, uh, was designing stuff and trying to make things work. And, I remember when I was like 14 years old, I had a Yamaha Blaster, a 1986 Yamaha Blaster. And my dad was a pilot, so he'd be gone for four days at a time as a commercial pilot. And I was, I, I didn't know how the, uh, I wanted to know what was going on inside that transmission. It really bothered me. So I took the whole thing apart at 14 years old. Wow. And my dad came home and there's just gears all over the place and everything was just perfectly laid out. And he just, he wasn't one of those guys that would scold me for doing something like that. His whole thing was like, that's yours. You can do what you want with it. You know, if it yeah. doesn't work, then then whatever. I had a friend growing up whose dad would scold him for that. And he never let him, he would slap his hand anytime he ever tried to take a tool to something where my dad was like, Hey, it's yours. You do what you want. And, um, he, he, he told me years later that he silently looked at the thing saying, he says, Oh God, that's the last thing that thing, that thing, last time that thing never started. <laughs> It'll never start. And, and two days later I had the thing all back together and fired up first kick, you know? And after that, he's like, wow. okay. So he kind of, he kind of started, um, you know, allowing me to kind of do some things. And, and my dad was the type, but, you know, I worked for everything that I ever had. They never gave me a thing, but mm-hmm. if he saw, you know, if he saw a spark somewhere, he would help me with that. And so, you know, he would, he, he kind of helped me financially with a few tools or things like this, you know, and, sure. and uh, I grew up just kind of doing that stuff. And then motorsports just kind of just, I, I stayed in it and rode and, and it was something that just caught me and, and, and never let go. And then, and then I switched to bikes at some point and got and started racing motocross on my own. They never really went to a race. They were fairly religious. So they went to church every Sunday when I was at the racetrack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, so then it, I got into racing on my own and most of the things I've ever done, you know, racing the Baja 1000 or the score series or all that stuff was all, 
I never really had anyone that showed me how to do any of that. It was always things that I just kind of want to do on my own. And, you know, that kind of took me through life and took me from one place to another to another. And there was just a number of opportunities I had during were, my life that just led me in different directions. When you were doing the score series, were were you doing that on motorcycles first or were you doing that on on uh, buggies or in buggies? Uh, well, I was I what kind of got me into score is I um, I worked for Rod Millen Motorsports um, yeah. when I was young. I got the job there when I was about 21 years old. And, um, it was, it, I mean, you're just thrown in the fire. It's like, it's like crash course in brain surgery, um, mm-hmm. kind of thing where I, I had a, worked for a guy who was a fabricator, taught me how to TIG weld. And I was a fabricator in the beginning before all of this. And, um, he ran out of work. We were making, um, exercise machines for quadriplegics mm. or not. And he ran out of work and, uh, he had a friend that worked at Rod Miller Motorsports. So I went there and, and immediately I was working on the, um, Pikes Peak cars, the one that, the ones that hold the world's record in the dirt still, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, still hold the world's record because people beat it, but that was after they paved it. So it doesn't count. Right. But, uh, um, I worked there. And then after that, I, I, uh, I worked there for five years, did both Pikes Peak cars and, uh, soda trucks back then it was soda. And then it became core and did some military vehicle stuff, some top secret things. And, and then, um, I got a job in uh, Myers Racing, and it was basically a wealthy family. They own Toyota Escondido. Uh, they have a house down here on Harbor Island, and uh, they had a race team that they were growing, and they needed a full-time fabricator prep guy. Um, so I went to work for them, and they were primarily racing score. And so in the end, um, they had um, a, a class 10 and two class 1s that I ran and co-drove in one of them. So I got to know Baja a number of different ways, but that was one of the ways. Um, and then I got to know score through racing with them and co-driving. So I when I left that outfit and started my own gig, I wanted to continue racing, but obviously I could not uh, afford right. a buggy. There's just, buggy, right. you have yeah. to be very wealthy, <laughs> right. you know, but you know, you can race a bike in Baja. Um, it's still very expensive, but it was within, you know, my means to do so with a team, you know, splitting the costs and things like this. So I, I, uh, I had a friend uh, who's actually here at the shop right now working on those 501 um, who came from Minnesota when he was a kid and, always dreamed about the Baja 1000. Even when he was a kid, he would watch it on TV and he wrote a paper in school when he was a little kid about, about the Baja 1000. And I came to him and we rode together a lot. And I said, Hey man, you want to race it? And he's like, you're kidding me. And I'm like, let's go do it. Yeah. And so I kind of helped him fulfill the dream. And then I got to start my own team and we had some success down there. I never won a championship or anything, you know, but we, I got a few top tens, probably three top tens and yeah. kind of made a name for ourselves. And, you know, it did, that's where I met my wife racing the Baja 1000. And for, for those outside of Southern California, SCORE is the Southern California off-road enthusiasts. And, and yeah. they're basically the sanctioning body for off-road racing. They, and they, they run the San Felipe 250, the Baja 500, the Baja 1000 series, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they, okay. they kind of took over. I think Nora ran it in the beginning, or it was Bud Ekins and some other guy. But SCORE took over in the late 60s, I want to say, and they've been running it forever. And that's yeah. like the predominant. Like you want to race, you know, what, you know, the, whatever, like it's a cannonball run. It's just crazy, you know? And so I wanted to do, my dad was an air force pilot. Um, he actually flew F one Oh fours. Okay. And, um, he did two and a half times the speed of sound. And so I always had a dad grew up with a dad that did extraordinary things. And I wanted to do extraordinary things. You know, if I ever had kids, I wanted to be able to have my, I wanted my kids to look at me and my dad did something extraordinary. So, I couldn't fly. Um, so I, I could fly, but I just had, you know, I could never be in the air force cause I had, I was, had astigmatism. 
Gotcha. So uh, motorcycles were the next best thing. It's something very similar uh, to flying, I think, just on the yeah. ground. Yeah. But I, that's something I wanted to do to, to to be different and do something incredible. There's there's only a handful of people in the world that have done it relatively, um, you know, in the thousands probably, tens yeah. of thousands at the most. But it's you know, it, something I want to do. Chris, it sounds like from the early beginnings, you were always about the performance, though, like, you know, Rottweiler performance, what it is today. Sounds like this was ingrained in you even back, you know, when you're, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't know what I was. I mean, I was, I did poorly in school. I didn't, I wasn't a very good learner and I probably had some sort of learning disability. And like I said, I, I, I got thrown out of high school because for straight F's across the board, they're like, just go away, just leave. And that <laughs> literally came halfway through my junior year. They're like, we don't want you here anymore. And they kicked me out. And my parents were quite worried about me because they didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and I always had a, the things I excelled in, like I said, were art and, and mechanics, which go well together if you're designing parts because you sure. you blend those two. And there was a period of time where I was I was thinking about going to MMI in Phoenix or something like this, and mm-hmm. that kind of never happened, you know. But um, I I ended up showing um, a high aptitude for fabrication with TIG welding. I was I actually was taught how to TIG weld when I was uh, about twenty. And it turns out I was very good at it. And so I became a fabricator. And so I was, I was, I ran my own shop uh, for probably a good 10 years, uh, fabricating high end exhaust systems and intake systems for race cars. Yeah. So, so I, I heard, I learned that and uh, was super impressed because I'm, I don't know a ton about Singer Porsche, but I, mm-hmm. I learned that you did maybe still do uh, manufacture exhaust systems for Singer. So, yeah, I designed their exhaust system that they currently have on other cars. So if you basically have a late 80s or early 90s, 911, you have about $600,000 burning a hole in your pocket. You could give it to and, them. Wait and, about a eight year, and, they, and a year to wait, right. Pretty much, yeah. These days it's about a year, and, and you can hand it to them, and they'll hand it back to you, and it's the most amazing Porsche you know, you can imagine. And they, they turned to me um, to design the system. And I, I made them. I probably made about 160 of them. I probably personally made the first 60 sets. Mm-hmm. And by that time I got an employee and taught him how to make them. And he made the next, you know, 80 of them. Um, and just recently we actually sold it to somebody else. We just, we wanted to focus on Rottweiler. It, it, it became, you know, Singer was actually kind of how Rottweiler got started. Um, mm-hmm. it, it helped it get started because Singer, what they tend to do is, is when you, when they have a contract with somebody, they have probably 180 different vendors, uh, but we were one of their larger suppliers, you know, um, dollar wise. So, you know, they had like, leather people that would do, do the you know the the leather the interiors that were these artists and they completely consumed a ton of these vendors um so that was a problem for a lot of people because it, they would consume you and then you wouldn't have it you'd anything almost else, right yeah. to an open check yeah yeah but you couldn't do anything else and you start to slowly lose your customers and so for me rottweiler kind of happened to start at the same time and we can get into that later but it basically singer I was okay closing my doors to everything else because everything else became Rottweiler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Singer just kind of kept me busy, kept me, that was really what was paying the bills when Rottweiler was just kind of lunch money in the beginning. It was just this thing we were kind of doing on the side that was kind of caught fire, but we were still kind of fanning it a little bit. And um, that's really what one of the key elements to, to helping us continue uh, to grow it. And then it got to the point uh, where Rottweiler had just completely eclipsed anything we were doing anywhere else. And now it got to the point where even no, regardless of what they spent on me, and that's a high profile gig, we were like, Hey, listen, we, 
thank you. We don't want to do this anymore. And we approached another fabricator and, and sold the job to them, sold them all the tooling and taught them how to make it and said, you're in good hands with this guy. We want to focus on Rottweiler. Yeah. Well, it says a lot about you as a fabricator because I know Rob Dickinson, the singer, is like a perfectionist. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, and or you don't spend six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars getting your mid eighties air cooled nine eleven redone and come back and be like, that's eh, okay, right? I mean, oh, it, yeah. it's it, you're it's got to blow you away, and and what he does to those cars is is unbelievable. So um, Rob is on eleven all the time. We used to, right. and he used to come into my shop, and it was fun. He he'd come to my shop and he we'd shut the doors. And I'd get a six pack of some beer that he liked and we'd sit there for hours. I wouldn't even charge him a penny. I, I felt bad. I enjoyed my time with him. And here's this guy who was, you know, I don't know if you know how he got a start, but he was, the, he was a drummer in a band and a singer. Yeah. He was a uh, front man for like a nineties, like British rock band. Right. Well, it was, it was called, um, Catherine wheel. Catherine the reason wheel, they yeah. called it Catherine wheel is his cousin is Bruce Dickinson. Who's the lead singer of iron maiden. Iron maiden. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, Iron Maiden is a torture device. And so Catherine Wheel is. And so they kind of <laughs> went with the same thing, but they were like eighties pop and there's a video you can find them. The one song that, that, that kind of kicked them off on K rock was called black Chrome or something. If you watch the video, it's super weird and creepy in eighties. Right, Everyone's very, wearing makeup and there's some Durand, like year old lady. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Except no hot chicks. There's like a, <laughs> like a 80 year old lady, like dancing around in the video. It's crazy, but it's uh that's how he made his money. Um, um, but they actually didn't make money. They ended up owing the record company a lot of money in the end. And so he, he just decided to make this Porsche. He had some money from somewhere else and he made this Porsche and somebody insisted on buying it from him. And they, he, the guy wrote an open check. And so he sold it. He built another one. Same thing happened again. He's like, maybe I should do this. And then he did it. Wow. So well, the, we were lucky the, enough to get the contract and I'm thankful for it. And he was a super nice guy. really enjoyed his time and it was fun working with him. Well, if the um, if the the nine eleven uh, helped fund your career, what was the what was the first Rottweiler part that that kind of sprung you into uh, success on the on the aftermarket scene? Yeah, that was, was the it, intake for the nine ninety. And yeah. what year was that? Like 2000, 2011, 2010? Okay, two thousand eleven. Yeah, and that uh, what, what you want to hear the story? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> of course we do. So the story is actually kind of cool. I, it, it, it um i met my wife pre-running in uh for the baja 1000 in, in 2007 and she's um she's from mexicali she's mexican uh quarter chinese mexicali was uh, um uh, settled best by the chinese be, okay best chinese food outside of china i always say that because mm-hmm. i travel to mexicali a lot for work mm-hmm. and i'm like I, we got to go for chinese and people are like we're in, in mexico and i'm like uh uh-uh, best chinese food because the railroad ended in Mexicali, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it was there. It was the railroad workers, and I think the ditch diggers, the canal diggers. Okay. And when when we were done with them, they just said, "Hey, beat it." We, you know, whatever. And they settled Mexicali, and I'm not sure what they call it at the time, but we drew the line down the middle, and it, our side became Calexico, their side became Mexicali, and and there's so there's a lot of Chinese influence there. Yeah. So my wife is she's three quarters Mexican, quarter Chinese. Her her grandfather was uh, full Cantonese. Okay. Um, had a restaurant, I think, and then had a, had a he had a gambling problem and gambled it away or lost it or something like this. But uh, I don't think she ever knew him. Um, but uh, I met her in San Felipe. She was down there with a friend and I was pre-running down there and I was racing the the code series, which is kind of like a Mexican version of score. And at the time I was actually winning in pro um, and Mexicali is not a whole lot to do. So a lot of them uh, off-road racing is 
kind of a big deal down there. And so everyone knows. And it was it was really fun for me because I really like this girl. And, you know, when you're dating somebody, you really want to impress them. And it was fun for me because I was like winning and her co-workers knew who I was. Like I had a little bit of a name down there. Like, a little, hey, little that bit guy. Of cred, yeah. Yeah. And it was it was like I was on like cloud nine. It was really cool. And I remember when we we had won a pro race and I was dating her and, and I was dying for her to come to the awards ceremony because I wanted to see her. <laughs> I wanted her to see me get these big awards, you know, whatever you can do to impress somebody, you know. Sure. But um, I met her and it took us about two and a half years. We fell in love and, and decided to get married. And, and uh, it took us about two and a half years to get her visa. We had to go to Juarez, the murder capital of the world at the time, three times to try to get her visa. It's like they you have to go to the consulate there and it's um, – it's, uh, it's like the DMV on steroids for human beings. It's crazy. And you have to go there. And it's and it's the murder capital of the world. That city is just yeah. nuts. So we had to go there three times and it just took forever. So I was driving my truck down there every every weekend or every other weekend. And it's two hundred miles to Mexico. So it's three hours, you know, plus the border weight. And there was sometimes the border was an hour or two going south. Sometimes it's two or three hours going north. This is all before and they had it, a fast pass. Yeah, they had it, but I just didn't have the sentry at the time. I ended up okay. getting it after yeah, a while. Sentry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just got tired of that border weight, so I got. Um, I had never really been into KTM's at all. I had been a Honda guy. Um, I, I love all brands. I'm not a big hater of anything or whatever. You know, I, I think they're all great. But I ended up buying a 2008 Super Duke 990 that I found that was a, a demo bike, and it was it was highly discounted and only had like 300 miles on it, and. I bought it and I started riding that down there. Um, and I had a blast. I loved it. Cause I had a fun going down. I, w- I would go. And my rule was I could never take the same combination of roads twice. You know, I could take the same roads cause you had to, but I could never yeah. take the same combination. I always had to mix it up. So I'd go through Julian or go through out or go down through Campo and, and whatever. And, uh, sometimes at 125 degrees in leathers, which was an interesting thing. But, uh, I started riding that thing down there and I had a blast. I just put a backpack full of clothes and I'd stayed at the Lucerna hotel there in Mexicali and, and the owner of the hotel was a big race fan. And so he'd always give me really good deals and I'd go spend the weekend with her. And, and, um, I started, I promised myself I wouldn't touch the bike. I was going to leave it alone. You know how that goes. And that, that doesn't sure. work with me. And so I had started messing with it. What I did for a living is I made exhaust systems and intake systems for race cars. So like trophy trucks, uh, GTP cars, uh, singer Porsches, Porsches, Lamborghinis, whatever anyone wanted me to make. And I make, and I specialize in those two things. And I knew how that stuff worked. You know, I kind of, I have a history in exhaust design and intake design and, and I know how to make things work and, and how to get the most power. Cause at Rodmill and Motorsports, I was very fortunate to work underneath some very, very bright engineers that came from Dan Gurney, um, IndyCar teams and some formula one stuff. And, all those engineers kind of get around and we were a part of yeah. the Toyota family, which was TRD, Dan Gurney's, uh, us, uh, Precision Preparation Incorporated, which was PPI that ran the, the Ivan Stewart truck. And so all of us were, were kind of sister companies and, and, and there was a lot of engineering and sharing back and forth. And I was like this young kid that was just soaking it all up and, 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 um, so I kind of took what I learned from that and, and I started playing with the Super Duke and designed the exhaust and did some things and I did an intake. And I ended up taking that thing to a dyno um, and to run it and, it. and the dyno guy was like, holy crap. He's like, this thing's like nine horsepower to the tire or whatever it was. or seven or nine horsepower. He's like, I've never seen anything like this. And, and at the time, 
I was doing um, what we call a dyno exhaust for this guy who was very prominent on the adventure rider forums. Um, uh, Tahoe racer uh, was, his, okay. was his nickname and uh, nicest guy I'd ever want to meet. And he was paying me to build an, uh, a dyno header, which is dyno header is basically where you, it's not, it's not designed to make, to fit on the bike. What you do is you just, you, you just run them out and you run them out the side and you keep them as short as possible and you build them to where you can start adding and adding lengths and different sizes and, and changing lengths. And you, you keep dynoing it and you yeah. build them an exhaust that they can, it's like Legos that you, they can play with the lengths and see what makes power. Then when you know what makes power, you try to package that in the bike. And this guy came down and, and I, he, he saw what I was doing. He's like, you know, that's the same motor, the LCA. And I didn't know anything about him. I'd seen 990s down in Baja, 950s racing the Baja 1000. You'd see him on the beaches sure. or in the middle of nowhere sometimes. And I'd be like, I'll be cut. I wouldn't be, I'd be damned if I get caught dead on, caught dead days, on one of those. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and who knew I would ever build a business like, you know, worldwide. <laughs> I didn't need parts for him, but you know, I, I, I go, well, can it, you mind if I can see if this, this intake fits on this thing? He says, he says yeah. And I, and it fit like it was made for it. So completely by accident because I built it to fit yeah. the, the super dude. And so he's like, dude, you need to sell these things. And I'm like, okay, but I'm kind of busy with the singer stuff right now. And, you know, don't tell anybody quite yet. Let, keep this under your hat. Well, he didn't. And he started a thread on it on adventure rider. And then calls started to come in. Um, and it was like, somebody's like, Hey, I hear you doing this thing. Can you make me one? I'm like, well, sure. You know? And so I made one and sold it to whoever that was. And then more calls started coming in. I'm like, man, maybe I have something here. Maybe I right. should make yeah, words, words getting out. Yeah. And I, I had this old CNC retrofit mill and I was milling them out of like this, this, this kind of like, it was like this carbon fiber board stuff that ended up not living very well. I made about a hundred of them and they, they kind of came apart. So we, we, we knew there was something there and I scrambled and made an injection mold and started injection molding these things. But that was the, the long story long that, that is the, that was kind of how it all started. And I got a little bit of a spark and we had a website that kind of showed off a lot of my intake systems and exhaust systems. And we started tweaking a lot of the colors from red to orange and mm -hmm. twisting dials. And all of a sudden it just became intakes, you know, and, yeah. and people didn't really know this website existed because I would just send customers links to look at pictures of all the exhausts that I'd done. And so it's not like there was a ton of traffic that was wondering what was going on. And, and so we just tweaked it over and then added a shopping cart to it. And, and, and it was this clunky old thing. And then we started doing a lot of mapping because we noticed nobody was doing mapping in the industry. And we started, mm -hmm. we, we said, you know, people are, people that are riding adventure bikes are, you, they're an older crowd with money that have a history on carbureted bikes and they just couldn't wrap their heads around fuel injection, which I understood very well because, everything that we did at, at Myers racing and at Millen's was fuel injected. I mean, we had a 2.1 liter four cylinder engine in the Pike speed car that made 1100 horsepower. Wow. You know? And so we, you know, I understood all that kind of stuff. And so we, we started trying to make it easy. I'm like, let's try to make it easy on customers. Let's preset them up and set them packages. And we just kind of built it from there and just kind of, we got a little spark and just fanned the hell out of the flames and a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck and, some skill here and there and we've just grown it into went from 1300 square feet into we're at 12,000 square feet now two warehouses that's crazy. five cnc machines mezzanine full dyno yeah. eight uh r&d bays uh, we have a 6,000 square foot warehouse for um distribution 
And so we got into the distribution game, you know, cause that's, so that's, that's what we did. What the story? Why, why didn't KTM do this from the start or why after, you know, a couple of years did, did they not just create a better air intake system on their bikes? They can't. Is regulatory? Um, yeah. They're, they're, the, the beauty about regulations is that it kind of makes it easier to make power. Mm-hmm. Whereas these guys, their jobs, they're so limited in what they can do. They're so restricted that they have to do a lot of interesting things to make as much power as they can because these things, they, they can't make noise. So the intakes are that big. They're tiny little, you know, mm-hmm. they're sucking through a straw. And really, you know, all you have to do is go in and kind of undo a lot of this stuff, you know, with skill, you know. Yeah. But they they just can't. Their hands are tied. They know. I mean, you know that KTM can make anything. You know, they have Dakar bikes that are single cylinder 450s that make 70 horsepower or whatever they make to the, to the you know. Right. They're, they know how to do it. They're just, you know, they're just legally bound. You know, they're trying to ship these things all around the world. And they, they typically focus on the most restrictive country, which is the People's Republic of California stand. Mm. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> So, you know, we, we go through and we just, we just kind of unclamp everything and, and set the fueling right. And, and, and you can, you can make a lot of power that way. And, and it, a lot of times you can make better, you can get better mileage that way. I mean, it, I mean, if you want to make power, sometimes you lose mileage, but you know, we can play with the spark advance and do some other things And mm-hmm. where these bikes, they come out running so much cleaner. They don't have any dead spots. They really pull. People ride motorcycles because they're fun. And we always encourage people, like, if you buy it, like, people buy bikes brand spanking new and they want to do all this stuff to them. Like, go ride it. Go ride it. At least put a 1,000 miles on it stock so you know the difference. You know, you can feel it because it's like sometimes you kind of get bored of, not bored of a bike, but it's just not new anymore. And what's fun about our stuff is that all of a sudden it makes it brand new again. It's like a whole new bike, you know. Sure. Whoa. I didn't know this, you know, was possible or this existed. You know, this bike has a whole new personality. So what, what's your relationship like with KTM? I mean, are they supportive of, I mean, you, you're selling a lot after, I mean, you know, you were a little shop in 2011. Now you're not so, not so little. Well, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting relationship. They, on a, on a corporate level, they, they don't really acknowledge us uh, very much. KTM is one of these companies where kind of long gone are the days where factories will embrace satellite companies outside of themselves. Like I did a lot of work for, it was a Honda satellite team. Um, Arion Racing. Okay. So I did a ton of stuff for Arion Racing. So they were their their street their road bike um, team. Their 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 uh, B, uh, B team, which is like a six hundred cc team, and they were like borderline factory. And they were a company like mine that did really mm-hmm. good work. And and Honda said we want you to run our B team, and they did. And they were very successful. And I built. I got to know them because I built all their pit equipment, like all their quick change stuff. So I designed all the things that went into the bikes and lifted them off the ground and changed tires within seconds and all that stuff. And kind of long gone are those days. KTM wants everything to themselves. They want to provide their own parts. They want to provide all their own aftermarket stuff. But the problem is they fail miserably at doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, they they can't. They release a bike, and here's this pretty catalog with all these parts, and none of them exist. Right. <laughs> they they they're back ordered for literally a solid year. The ETAs yeah. are like 2023 on some things on these bikes that come out. So. I've gotten to know a lot of the like personnel at KTM and they're all Mm -hmm. wonderful people and they like us a lot. I mean, the president of KTM USA before he was president had our stuff all over his super Duke. Mm -hmm. But when he became president, he could not do that anymore. Couldn't do it. 
Couldn't John wrap Hyde. it in that. Yeah, couldn't put it in that Rottweiler wrap. He could not be seen with yeah. anything but stock. So it'd be, it's this kind of corporate mentality. And, you know, they like we do, we kind of, there's part of us that, that like we kind of wish, you know, we, we kind of wonder like, you know, if we'd ever end up in their, in their hard parts. Cause a lot of times what they would do is they would just kind of like private label stuff. Like their mm-hmm. levers used to be arc levers, but they were orange and they didn't say arc. They said KTM, but right. you know, Bob Barnett made them. And, uh, they used to be able to do that. And, and at one point Austria came in, they said no more of that. Cause the U S kind of was free to do that with their hard parts. Austria came in and said, no more of that. You know, we have full control, you know, and everything's got to go through us. And they just wanted to supply everything. And they kind of put the kibosh to all that. And, you know, for a while we kind of, you know, we're, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be neat if KTM, you know, made some Rottweiler parts, hard parts. And then after a while we started kind of wondering, is that what we really want? Is it, right. you know, maybe it's just an ego thing. Maybe it's just it like, or, or maybe we just, it's like a form of acceptance. Like, you know, we made it, you know, right. but then you wonder like, why? You know, it's, it's, we're doing fine on our own. We actually kicked their butt in a lot of categories. You know, they, we have this new triple clamp for the 798 and even they came out with one. It's a WP product and it's a very simple, no frills, no big deal. Triple clamp ours smokes it in every way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, in beauty and machining and in rigidity and strength and adjustability and everything. Yeah. And so we, that's the genesis of why I asked that question, Chris, because I was watching that your triple clamp video and you, I think you pull the bearings off and you're like, here are the KTM bearings and they're like bicycle bearings. Ching, ching. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and I was like, man, if, if I'm KTM watching this, what, what, you know, how am I reacting? But when you when you look at what they had and your triple clamp side by side, it, I mean, there's no no comparison. Yeah, now, we 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 do that on purpose. You know, we yeah. wanted we want to make sure that like everything we do, we don't want people to look at our triple clamps and go, "Oh, that's nice." Rottweiler decided to make triple clamps, so that's that's cute. You know, that we don't mm-hmm. want that. We want, you know, there's companies like, in my opinion, like give you an example, like Pro Taper. Everything Pro Taper makes is ten percent better than everything else. If they make a twist grill, a billet twist throttle, it's hard anodized instead mm-hmm. of anodized. Hard anodized is more expensive. It's tougher. It's better. If somebody's using 6061, they're using 7075 aluminum, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of wanted to emulate that. I want to make sure that whatever we do, that it so yeah. blows away anything else that anyone is doing. Like we would climb to the top of the mountain, we plant our flag and we say, bring it. We don't go halfway up and go, eh, okay, this is good enough. You know, we want to make sure that everything we do is, is perfect. And, and, you know, I've read a number of books on creating products and they say, you know, if Toyota came out with a cola, would you be interested? Probably not. But if Toyota came out with a motorcycle, you'd be like, okay, I'll bite. It's yeah. close enough. And yeah. so we kind of, we, we look at it that way. We kind of, you know, read, you know, you know, how books on, you know, the, the, the Toyota way they talk, you know, lean manufacturing and all these yeah. things. Yeah. Talk Six about. Sigma lean manufacturing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And their, 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 their whole motto is always make it better. If it's good enough, it's not good enough. Make it better, make it better. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, try to emulate that. We want to make sure that whatever we come out with is, is, is so amazing. So that way over time we build that trust with our customers. So no matter what we do very much like pro taper, in my opinion, now some people may disagree with that, find your own example, whatever. Yeah. But in, in, you know, whatever they come out with, I trust it's going mm-hmm. to be good. They make tie downs, they make triple clamps, they make all these different things. They're tie downs. I love them. You know, they yeah. got carabiners on them and the whatever, some people don't like them, whatever. But our whole thing is, is to try to make, you know, 
establish, you know, you look at companies like we've been accused of being the the white brothers of KTM many times, which I'm, I'm very flattered by because I, I had the privilege of having Tom White in my house one time. But, yeah. Uh, and I got to know him and he actually came to my shop when it was 1300 square feet and he got kind of, kind of emotional looking at my assembly shop. And he, I'm like, what are you looking at? And he's like, this is exactly how we got started. This is exactly how we used to number the bins. This is exactly how we used to store bolts. Right. And it really meant kind a lot. Of stamp of approval. Yeah. Yeah. From Tom White himself. And this White, is maybe yeah. a couple of years before he passed or a year before he passed. And, um, I've gotten, I've gotten to know his son-in-law, uh, John Anderson from W wheel and, and his daughter, Kristen, and, and they're wonderful people. And we've kind of been aligned with it. You know, we've, we've, you know, you guys are like the white brothers of KTM and, and we've really taken that to heart. We really wanted to carry that and, and, and kind of run with that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also live up to that as well as best we can, you know, eventually we want to have more departments and want to do more things. And it's, we're kind of just limited by space here. You know, we have this complex that we're in and I've told the landlord, I said, I want every building in here. Yeah. It's like you're 25% of my rent at this point. The guy's all freaked out that if I leave, it's going to be a 25%. I said, I'm not interested in leaving. I want all these buildings. I want, I want Baja tours over there and I want suspension department over there and I want UTV stuff over there or whatever we do, you know? And, and so we, we want to keep growing with it. You, you focus exclusively on, on KTM. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, philosophy due to your days at singer where they exclusively focus on you know one model and do one thing better than anybody else did you kind of carry that over into your or was it just look i got my hands full with ktm and you know and and doing parts for this bike and don't really have time or space or you know well it's a little bit of that um ktm keeps us plenty busy um Mm -hmm. Because whoever's designing their airboxes, I hope they keep them forever, and I want to get packages, <laughs> flowers, and and um, uh, whoever that is, I love them. Um, right, but because uh, they can't design an airbox to save their lives, some of it, is, some of it is that. Uh, I also, I personally don't like to do anything unless I believe that I can do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of person who will overwhelm myself with everything just to make a buck. There's a lot of things. I mean, the triple clamps, for example, we spent a year designing them. I spent probably $200,000 in machines to make them. We haven't sold a ton of them. It's not a big thing for people. It's not, it's a scary thing for people. That's the reason I made that video is to try to take the scariness away from it. Yeah. You know, so people like, maybe I can do this myself because the idea of paying somebody to do it, the, the costs start to stack up and they're not a cheap thing to buy and, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, we don't want to spread ourselves thin, ourselves thin, mm-hmm. ourselves thin. And the establishment of trust is an important thing to me where, yeah. I mean, we get calls that we've been trying to figure out how to monetize these calls that we get because people don't trust their dealers. So we get calls all the time. Like, Hey, my bike's making this noise. What do you think it is? And we're like, okay, you know, <laughs> right. like we're not a 1-800 yeah. or 1-900 number. Like how do we, we, and I tell my guys, I'm like, listen, you know, if, if you're not super busy, do what you can to help them. Cause you'll probably get a happy return customer out of them. Yeah. But sometimes it gets a little overwhelming because we've become this trusted entity that I'll oh, just call Rottweiler. And it's like, yeah. well, okay. But you're consuming a lot of our resources with like, people call us up and they have, they've never even bought anything from us. And they're like, Hey, it's <laughs> making this noise or it's doing this or it's running kind of funny. And well, yeah, you guys are the experts, you know, and we're super flattered by it, you know, but we're trying to figure out how to do it. And yeah. my guys do a pretty good job. They, they, they help people out when they can. And if they, if they can't, they say, Hey, listen, you got to, you got to call your dealer and they're like, well, I don't like my dealer. Or they're too far away. And it's like, well, 
you know, and call back when we're less busy or something. You do, know, do but you trust think, is important to me, and we it, want it people is, to know that what they get from us is good. Do you think that's an issue with KTM's the the dealer network? And I mean, you know, the the knock on it is, you know, that the warranty is going to get rejected, you know, a hundred hundred times out of a hundred uh, when you when you take your KTM in, and you know, compared to you know, say BMW, where you know they they tend to seem to take care of their customers maybe a little bit better after you after they deliver the bike. KTM unfortunately is particularly bad on warranty stuff. Um, unfortunately, it's just a stance they've taken. Um, you know, like Kawasaki, you know they're Japanese. They believe these parts should last forever. Right. And I've heard some crazy stories about stuff that they've warrantied that's like thirty years old. You know, and it's like well, mm-hmm. KTM is is different there. Um, and it's, yeah. it's a bit disappointing, um, you know, as the aftermarket, obviously we feel the more, the more KTMs that, that they sell, the better off that we are, obviously, uh, the aftermarket, because, you know, it's obviously when people buy new bikes, they buy new things, you know, and it, and it concerns us when, when we see that, you know, cause people are like, ah, you'll see on forums, you know, I'm not buying a KTM because if something happens, you know, I, I own 26 of them. I, I really haven't, I haven't really had any issues with mine. Um, that being said, when you own 26, they don't exactly get that much mileage on any one of them. <laughs> well, we, we buy them all for R and D bikes. You know, we don't borrow yeah. bikes. I always buy them. And then they just, I have a hard time selling them because we want them there in case we have any questions or want to design anything new. I didn't have issue one with my, my 1090 adventure. R. I love that bike. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm getting the 890 adventure. R. I mean, they're so damn fun to, to ride. I mean, that's, that's why you keep going back to it. Well, the eight ninety seven ninety was a was a it was a home run. That category was a home killer, run. yeah, yeah. They they kind of got away from the the nine nineties, and then they they started getting kind of heavy and and top heavy, and they were kind of kind of trying to compete. I think with the BMW, you know, coffee crowd or whatever. And yes, yeah. Not that the ten ninety was a bad bike, but it 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 lost a little bit of that those Dakar roots. There was no mm-hmm. Dakar roots in it at all, where the nine ninety did have Dakar mm-hmm. roots, and it was a legit handling bike. And they kind of got some of that back with the 790, and and we went out and took it and raced it in the Sonora Rally uh, just to try to prove that this bike was a worthy replacement to the 990, and we were almost third overall behind Ricky Brabeck and Skyler House on the 790. <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to talk a minute about that. So you start racing the the 790 and 890, and it, what was the, the rationale behind that? Is that just like let's make this a Rottweiler bike and prove that our performance? you know, matters and, and can win on the, on the, uh, on the, the race circuit. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you want to get people to notice, you got to do things out of the ordinary. I mean, that's true on Instagram or YouTube or anything else. You got to do, you know, do something that's people don't expect. And, and we, you know, a, we wanted to test our parts and prove, I mean, what's better than coming back from the Sonora rally Mm-hmm. On a 790 at the time, they didn't have the 890 at the time. And, but, you know, coming back from the Sonora Rally, nine seconds out of third overall, you know, that's that's a pretty good. Yeah, you were in it right up until right up until the very end, right? Oh, God, we had 45 minutes of downtime the first day with a broken uh, tower, something I made that unfortunately failed the first day. And, and you know, it, and we fixed it and got him worried. But 45 minutes of downtime and then to be out of uh, off the podium by nine seconds was painful. Mm. Um, and who was riding for you? West Van Nuenhaus. So he's the son of the owner of Cyclops, and they are um, giant Danish people. 
um, the Norwegian or whatever they are. They're just yeah. monsters. And right. he, he's just, he's like this gentle giant. He's the softest, like mellow, nicest guy, but he, they're just big people. Um, and he can throw that thing around like it's a dirt bike and the stuff that he was doing on it floored me. I mean, the, the we, we paid for the, the media package, which means there's people way out there in the dunes taking pictures and he's like manualing this thing through the whoop de doos <laughs> just, ah, 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 you know, and everybody came back, you know, every day, you know, people were coming in going, that thing sounds so wicked, you know, cause it, it just like, you'd hear the singles, eh, you know, and Ricky Brayback would come by and he's usually screaming and, but they're all singles. And all of a sudden you hear this thing that sounds like a trophy truck, this wah, wah, you know, just screaming and rest just, West just, just rode the piss out of that thing. And uh, we just wanted to see what it took. You know, there was all these things about the clutch and issues with the clutch and the lubrication, which we proved were wrong. Everyone's like going to these bigger jet sizes and all this stuff, which is a myth. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we also we wanted to prove our parts, you know, but we also wanted to prove the chassis and prove that it that it was worthwhile. And you kind of hope, you know, that kind of ties into what we're talking before. You kind of hope that KTM takes notice. And like I built my entire shop to impress like when you come in yeah we want it to be impressive you know it's all in the background of the videos and that is my actual shop it's not a mm-hmm. studio and we we kind of had the hopes that it, at some point if we ever got in talks with ktm that they would come in and say okay these guys are on the ball they're legit you know yeah. but um it'll never happen with them they're an austrian company they have very different outlooks on things in the u.s you know they're they're, they're their hands are tied with things that they can do and you know, there, there's a lot of people down there that like us. They run our parts and they would love to do something with us, but they're just like, ah, there's nothing we can do. So we try not to disparage the brand. I might rag on their intakes, you know, here and there, but we, we do love the brand. You know, it's an exciting brand and they do a lot of cool things and they, they keep, they keep the aftermarket busy in a good way. You know, uh, you can yeah. do that one of two ways, but they keep the aftermarket busy, you know, <laughs> where we can, <laughs> where we have something to make and offer for these things and, you know, and try to customize them for people. So, but I think also, I mean, um, I get what you say when you, you can take it either way, but I think too, that the, I mean, if you're, if you're buying a KTM, you're, you're bleeding orange, you're kind of a, a brand fanatic and you're getting into that thing because that bike performs so well in the category it is, whether it's a, a you know, motocross bike or, um, you know, an 890 or 1290, uh, and, and so I think you're just, you know, if you're going KTM, you're, you're probably predisposed to want to do more to it. Well, the type of people that I think KTM attracts are, are more exciting people, people like you, when you go to the rider rallies, you go, you can go to BMW rider rally and it's, it's like, how's your coffee? That's oh, good. You know, it didn't take me any time to get down there, you know, and then, <laughs> it, you know, and, and I'm, I say that tongue in cheek. I mean, yeah, some pretty I serious know. off-road guys with the BMW, but. Yeah, the KTM riders are a very different crowd. They're hardcore, yeah. you know, and there are guys that are manually. I mean, they're wheeling these things like you could not believe. You know, Wes and and Radek Burkat. You know, he's the he was the owner of, of Pink Bike. Uh, that he's a big Canadian guy. He throws those things around like they're nothing. Um, and they're they're a hardcore crowd, and and it it matches the bike. Because KTM to me is a is a very it's an exciting company. Um, I raced Hondas in the desert and. Honda's just always dominated Baja, and, and that's what was reliable, and that's what I was used to. I had some Yamas. I think the only brand I've never owned is K- uh, Kawasaki. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had Yamahas, I've had Suzuki's, I've had, you know, Hondas and I like the Hondas and, but the Honda as a company has just gotten so homogenized and boring and they're just, it's just like, ah, uh, you go to the, 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 you know, the motorcycle shows, the IMS shows, and it's just like, ah, it's the same thing. The 450X had the same stupid front fender for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, and it was just, and it's just yawn. And KTM is just so on the cutting edge and so exciting. And for whatever reason, they can shuck and jive and move and change direction so much faster than the Japanese companies. The Japanese are just, they're, they have a very different mentality and mindset where the Austrians they'll they'll take chances and they'll do all these new exciting things and they're very good about being able to change up designs very quickly now that can kind of frustrate the aftermarket a little bit because mm-hmm. it's like oh god they changed this again yeah you know yeah, it's like yeah. oh Adjusted. now yeah. i gotta do castings for foot pegs again or now i gotta do whatever yeah but they don't you know they're not too bad on that but they're just they're on the cutting edge of things and they're killing it and they've just been on this run forever so far is an aftermarket company kind of catering to ktms it's more exciting because there's always something new and always something changing and always something to sink your teeth into and it's i think one of my favorite things is to get a brand new model like the new 1290 came out the 2022 mm-hmm. for us yeah and my one of my favorite things is just to dive just take one of those things literally from the showroom floor and just start Sorry, t- it apart. apart yeah and just just to kind of try to get in the mindset of what the engineers were thinking and you can see Year after year after year from the 2008 Super Dukes that were so rudimentary in what they were doing, you know, you know, and, and the older they get, the more rudimentary they get. And you can see as an, as a, you know, as a designer myself, I'm not, I'm not an engineer. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I think most people will tell you they're an engineer and not actually certified engineers, but as a designer, I can look and you can, it's like this fingerprint that you can see and, and you can almost see it's like, Oh, they don't have those engineers anymore. They have the, they, they, it's almost like they, it's like sometimes you'll see, oh, they must have fired about 25% of them, replaced them with new blood because you can see styles start to change and you can see, you know, how things are attached. And it's really fun for me to kind of go in that discovery phase with a new bike, you know, to take nuts and bolts apart. And you can, like I said, it's there, you can see the fingerprint. You can almost you get in the heads, and what's really interesting about KTM's is actually when you reverse engineer them, there's a lot of standard numbers that you can extrapolate from them. And so when you measure like center to center on holes, it'll be like an inch and a quarter on the dot, down the thousandth of an inch, an inch and three eighths, an inch and a half. And it's all it's like who's designing these things? You would think right. they'd all be metric. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's interesting when you when you when you start to take them apart, you know what you'll find and and the personality that comes out of that bike, you can see the personality of the engineers and what their inspirations were. And I've been in and around that. I've been lucky enough to be in and around that. Um, I was actually on the design crew for the first Porsche Carrera GT, totally unrelated to the, the singer stuff, the singer project. Um, and they actually designed the Porsche Carrera GTs in Huntington beach, uh, right here in yeah. the industrial area. And they had a few Germans flew over and lived here for a couple of years and, but they were all designed here and, and to see the engineers, they had literally pictures of like Jaguars and Eagles and, and animals and cars and all these different things plastered around their cubicles. And they would just take this, these inspirations from animals and all these different things, you know, and, and this was a design studio. They all, the other thing they were designing was a coffee machine yeah. and the career GT, those two things. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's interesting. 
industrial design. But, I've I've had the opportunity to hang around a couple of industrial design firms, some some pretty uh, relatively famous ones up in Seattle that did work for Boeing, and mm-hmm. and it was super cool. Just uh, you know, totally different than you know, a creative mm-hmm. agency doing you know non material. Uh, you know, creative work or advertising work to see mm-hmm. them and what they take inspiration from. And, uh, Oh yeah. You know, they go through the clay phase, shaping it with the clay. And I've, yeah. I've been through a lot of that and it's, it's so much fun, but yeah, so, I mean, it, to, to see when the new bikes come out and then to start looking and go, okay, what can we do? You know, what could, what can we, where, where are possible failure points? Where are ways to make uh, somebody's experience with this bike better? You know, and, and our philosophy of motorcycles is, is we know, we know KTM can build a perfect motorcycle, you know, but for who is the question. Yeah. Everyone's different. Right. And so that's the beauty of the aftermarket is, is that the aftermarket gets to allow people to feel like they're a part of the design phase, you know, mm-hmm. where I get to customize this. And you, you'll get the guys in the forums are like, oh, what are you putting that on for? You, you can never, you know, you'll never outride this thing or that's never going to help you. And, I, and those guys drive me nuts because what they're not taking into account is the dopamine release. You know, yeah. of the build of, of of people putting parts on their bikes because I had a guy roll up to my shop once and he had orange anodized bolts all over his 1090 and I had this knee jerk reaction to go uh, and make fun of him a little bit yeah. and I realized I'm like that guy every one of those bolts that he wound in that bike that guy got a shot of dopamine you know and that's the whole reason we do anything it's the whole reason from the day we're born to the day we die dopamine is the thing that keeps stringing us along. You know, and in, in it's how we survive. And it's and it's in. So, you know, that's what I kind of like to be a part of with the aftermarket industry is, is allowing people to kind of get those dopamine shots where they can take this bike that was originally designed for a five foot nine person that weighs 160 pounds that rides it here and they get to tweak the thing and make it what they want out of it. And then they get to feel like they're part of the design phase when they're going off road and they go over something, and the bike handled a certain way. They can feel I did this, not some yeah. company in Austria did this. I did this, right? You know, I I made this thing do what it does, and we kind of get to do that on steroids because we have the equipment, but we also help people with that kind of thing, which is a lot of fun, you know. Because they, you know, what what do they do? How do they build these bikes to make them affordable? Is the big question. You know, we yeah. all we all know they use decorative chrome on on forks. It's not precision chrome. It's not precision ground. It's very lumpy. So yeah. the action in forks, stock forks is just okay. So if you have them precision ground or DLC coated, it adds expense to them, but it makes them better. You know, so they, they're thinking, okay, what do we have to do to build these bikes to where they're legal? What do we have to do to make them affordable? You know, and, and, and the engineers are always getting in their chocolate in the bean counters, peanut butter, right. you know, and vice versa. You know, they're always going back and forth because the accounts are going, we can't have this and the engineers are pushing for it because they know it's going to make the bike better. But the accounts are going, it's going to make it too expensive. And I've been a part of that with Hyundai and Honda and Porsche and all these different companies. So it's always this kind of fight, you know. And so you you get the final model and whatever some guy thinks it's supposed to be. And then we get to help people make it what they want. Yeah. Speaking of helping people, as an aftermarket consumer, uh, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate is the instructions that you add for, for your parts. Was that out of frustration from other people or like calling in and asking for help or just, uh, do you mean the written instructions or the YouTube video? Well, the written instructions are really good. We do that. We've done those downloadable from the, from the get go. 
And the reason we did that, um, we just we we link them from a Dropbox file, and people have access to it. We've gotten a bit better throughout the years with QR codes, where now you can just scan the labels, and boom, it's in your phone. We do that because we, I prefer, I cannot stand black and white instructions with minimal pictures. And I'm a big, I was that kid that's like, mom, why, 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 why? You know, I was that kid. And so I like instructions that explain why. This is, I'm having you do this and do it this way. And here's why, because it it helps get in, you know, it, it helps people understand what they're doing better. You know, I had a guy tell us once, I did a video and what they, one of the best comments I saw was this guy's like, you know, I teach autistic kids. He's like, and the way you recap the video and the way you do it is exactly how you're supposed to do it. You go over, you do, you, you do it. And then you recap what you did. Yeah. And then you move on. And I didn't realize I was doing it. He, yeah. You, like, you do a really good job on the YouTube videos. Like, here's what we're going to do. And then you do it. And then you say, you know, here's why we did what we did. And it, you're explaining it all along the way. And it's just, it, it's great. And you're having fun with the audience. I mean, I watched that triple clamp video and you're like, you know, here's how I take off the front tire. And you're like, look, if you can't do this, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be riding an adventure bike, you know, which, well, which for, you know, I, it's great. You know, you gotta, you gotta have some fun with it. First I said, first I said, I said, if you can't do this, you got to turn in your man card. And then, and then all of a sudden we're like, are we going to get canceled? <laughs> right. are we, are we gonna, like, so we, we had to change it from turning in your man card to, to turning in your adventure card because we, we didn't want to offend somebody because, you know, sure. people get offended these days. Sure. But um, yeah, we try to, the, the, here's what we're going to do is, is my media guy, Scott, it's, that's his thing. He's like, I want you to explain everything you're going to do first and then I'll video you. You know, okay. he's like, don't, I, I was like, I'm always trying to push people like, just film me while I'm talking. And right. they're like, and the media guys like the the they don't like that. He's like, tell me everything you're going to do, and then just do it. And then the why we do it is me. That's my part of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Because I like I've, I've read instructions before, and I'm always that like, well, why, why? why? And then they'll just say take this off, but they don't tell you why, and that has always bothered me. So the reason we do the downloadable is because I like to give people full big color instructions that are very detailed. Um, I don't, and we've gotten a lot of, uh, praise on our, on our instructions throughout the years. And, and we just kept doing them that way. Um, we never, I don't think I've, I've ever printed one set of instructions with, with parts. And it's, I mean, it's 2022 for this, at this point, for Christ's sake, you know, it's like everything is coming with, with, you know, it's on on your phone and QR codes and, you know, we're, we're big on that now. And now we have this kind of cool app where you actually, it's one QR code, not multiples, and it takes you to this landing page that looks very much like a very professional app on your phone. Mm-hmm. And it's a landing page and it says, where do you want to go? You can leave a Google review. You can go to our Facebook, you can go to our YouTube, or you can go straight to the instructions. Um, and it takes them to our website and it's a very slick kind of thing. And that's allowed us to just have one QR code and not have to come up with hundreds of them. Yeah. But thank you. Uh, yeah. For, the instructions for are I appreciate great that very and, much. and much appreciated for, you know, somebody that doesn't always know exactly how to get something off or, put it back on. So we have fun with them. I got, I was actually making some today and we just, I've got a technique that I use with my camera and all the pictures show up in one note and we just drag them into word and mess them around, you know, put arrows to things. And it's, I kind of have fun with it. I like it. I think I know the story, but Rottweiler, the name, how'd you come up with (laughs) Rottweiler performance? Uh, that's the other story. Um, I've never had a dog in my life. Um, 
and <laughs> that may disappoint a lot of people. Um, but to, to have a dog, you have to kind of live it. It has to be your whole life. And, and sure. we live in a, in a community that's, that's near the beach and there's no yards, there's no room. And, uh, but the name Rottweiler came around. Originally, my business was called CPR Fabrications. And it was Chris Parker Racing Fabrications. And it worked because I designed exhaust systems and intake systems that make an engine breathe. So the, the acronym CPR. Acronym CPR, yeah. And I came up with it when I was a kid and always wanted a shop called CPR, you know, Chris Parker Racing. And so I had a shop, CPR Fabrications, and we did that. And when I came out with the first intake, we put, we put, C, well, I made a stencil and we spray painted CPR on them. And it kind of worked um, because CPR were making your engine breathe. And yeah. it was, you know, engine, but, yeah, you right. know, but talking to Troy Lee, who's uh, somewhat of a, a friend of mine, he lives down here and he's, he's, I got about one degree of separation, but I could, he's, I know him well enough to where I could call him and he'll pick up his cell phone. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say that. Um, but I don't want to sound like a name dropper, but, uh, talking to him one day, he's like, he's like careful with the acronyms. Cause people, people still don't even know what TLD is. You know, he's like, I run into people all the time. What's TLD, right. you know, Troy Lee designs, they know, but TLD, they didn't. Yeah. And I've always had a aversion to acronyms. I just, there's, there's just so cliche. There's so many acronym businesses in this world that are three letters and it just drives me nuts. So looking at Revzilla, like Revzilla had this cool name to it. Revzilla. Mm-hmm. It was like this animal almost, you know, I'm like, I want to, I just had that on my brain, but I couldn't figure it out. I was wandering around the shop and my wife was finally here in the country at the time. And she'd only had been here less than a, a few months. And I was kind of walking around in circles and I had fired up that 2008 Super Duke and it was an all black Super Duke. And it was a special edition that was like completely blacked out. Um, I fired it up and I whacked the throttle open and it went, and it was this big guttural bark. And it sounded just like a dog because the intake is open. And it's underneath the fuel tank. So it kind of, reverberated through the fuel tank and it just went and it went and it was that that big twin and i'm like well okay it sounds like a dog if that bike were a dog what would it be and i looked at and i stood back and in super dukes they're big piston twins so big piston twins are not known for top end speed like a greyhound they're known for strength and brutality and i was and i looked at it and it was black and they sit kind of front heavy and you know (laughs) kind of strong and muscly and i'm like I looked at my wife. I go Rottweiler performance. We'll call or I go Rottweiler intakes. We'll call it Rottweiler intake systems. And she's like, "That's cool." And so we renamed it to Rottweiler. And she found this font and she created the Rottweiler and she made it all craggly. It's the same font we have today, and it was very dirty and crusty and tough looking. And and um, and I'm like, "That's it. That's you know." And and I love it. And and it just took, and it, because Rottweilers are German dogs, it's kind of close to Austrian, and right. people liked it, and it was cool, and and it had a little bit more personality than CPR. I wanted something that had personality. Yeah. Um, if I had known it would have grown this big today, I probably would have thought about it a little bit more, but I don't think I'd change a thing. Right. Because um, people, it's it's kind of you know how word. What's that? It's memorable. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And you know, you know how words kind of take on if you say it enough, like my dad, his name is Morris Brown Parker, the third, he, and no one goes by Morris. And so his entire life has been Brownie. And so he's Brownie. Well, Brownie, the first time you hear Brownie, it's, you think the dessert, the little Brownie. Yeah. When I hear Brownie, I think my dad's name, it's a name to me. Yeah. So Rottweiler was, it's kind of the same where it's like, you hear it enough. It's it, to me, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a business. It's a, it's not a dog. 
you know, it's a business. It means something, you know, like yeah. the R, you know, we had, I think we went to our first KTM rally and we had these shirts brand new printed. We put the R in there. We wanted to do something like, not like Superman, but something that was a symbol smack mm-hmm. dab in the center of your chest, not off to the side. We want it in the center. And it, you know, this is like your core. This is your strength right here. Your heart, your lungs is here. And I met, and it was black and white. And I remember sitting in a, in a, in this, this little pub in uh, steamboat Springs, Colorado. And it was our first KTM rally in 2012 when we'd showed up and we, there was a lot of interest because we were brand new. And there was a marketing guy across the way. And this guy, we started talking. He's like, what do you guys do? And we started telling him and we started kind of telling the same story. And he's, and he goes, he goes, your shirts. And I go, yeah. And he goes, your shirts are perfect. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, there's a lot of companies that make the mistake of having a very complicated logo with a lot of colors and a calligraphy or something. And he's like, it's impossible to read. Nobody knows what it is. He's like, that R, I can see from 100 yards in a way, and I know exactly, exactly what it is. What it is. Yeah. He's like, what you guys are doing is, is perfect. And that was really humbling to hear that. Like, cool. Like, there was a number of things we had done that were just inherently and instinctively in the right direction. You know, we yeah. had no education. I told you I was thrown out of high school my junior year for straight Fs. They're like, just right. go away. And so we we But you don't were good have... at art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, you know, but a lot of our passions, a lot of things that we felt were right just happened to be, you know, happened to kind of steer us in the right direction. I'd say 85% of the time that our instinctual gut instincts about things happen, you know, happen. We'll read a book about business and it says, do this, this, this. I'm like, we're already doing that. Cool. You know, yeah, reaffirm so, for sure. Yeah. Uh, are you are you doing any riding? I mean, it sounds like you're working a lot. Uh, we're recording this podcast after hours, so after mm-hmm. your your a full work day, I'm sure. Uh, but are you are you still getting any time to enjoy adventure motorcycles? Not as much as I'd I'd like, um, but we're trying to change that. Um, yeah. We uh, I I'm not really a day rider. I don't like just going out for the day. Some people go you know and go to Malibu Canyon and go do that thing. I like adventure. I like going out for multiple you know days and, and planning trips. So we, this Saturday we're leaving and we're riding from Takati to Cabo seven or we're riding for seven days, but it's a 10 day trip. We have a couple of days off here and there in some cool places like Loretto and La Paz and just to yeah. take in the town and take a break and work on the bikes a little bit. But we had our heads down for about a decade with this thing mm-hmm. and it really just kind of overwhelmed us. And, but it was that one thing we're like, it, it's like, we we're never doing anything else. This is it. This is, you know. And so we really put our heads down and worked our butts off. And I'm here till 9 p.m. every night. And I, I, I you know, the, I own the thing. So I'm here 80 hours a week. Um, I don't really get to do what I want to do until 5 p.m. when everyone mm-hmm. goes home, you know. Um, but we had a we had a um, a vendor of ours. Uh, um, it's a little bit of a sad story, but we had a vendor of ours that I became close with. And they were completely on the other side of the world. And I, I got to know this guy, and he helped to bring a few projects of ours to life that we were struggling uh, with over here, trying to get made. And uh, he was just this guy who was just head was going all the time. And um, he'd become kind of a personal friend of mine. I'd never met him, but I spent an hour on the phone with him every week. And uh, I come in one day, and uh, Will, my front guy, he's like, he's like, hey, did you hear what happened to Simon? And my heart just dropped. And I'm like, and I just looked at him, and he's like, Simon passed, and I just. It just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And my, my wife actually told me, she's like, actually, this is only the second time in our marriage I've ever seen you cry. And the mm-hmm. first time was when I had a, a childhood friend pass away, this girl that I used to know. And I had never met the guy, uh, but it, it, it really affected me because this guy died in his, in his wife's arms, had a heart attack. 
um, and and had a very similar company to mine, and let and his wife and his nineteen year old son were left over to to try to run this thing, and it really affected my wife too. She's like, "That's my biggest fear, is losing you." And it would stand on its own at this point, I, whether new products would come out or not. But it's a different question. I don't really have anyone else designing things but me right now. But at that point, I stepped back and I looked at my wife, and we I sat down and I go, "Listen." I don't want to wake up and I'm 60 years old and wonder what in the hell I did with my life for the last 20 years. And now all of a sudden I'm, it, it hurts too much to do what I want to do. Yeah. And so lately um, we've kind of, it's part of the reason we stopped doing singer. I said, you know what, let's just focus on what's important. So we're completely rebuilding our website. That's important. We, we you know, we, we want, we want a business. If you've ever dealt with an online business, it's just perfect across the board. Yeah. You know, these companies, you can tell they just know what they're doing from one end to the other. We want to retool our business to where, you know, we're just perfect across the board. And we've tweaked a lot of dials and we, we're, we're pretty good right now, but we want that experience where the emails you get from us look the same as the website and we have perfect live inventory and everything. And we, you know, we're, we're going through that. But I said, let's focus on what's important. Let's stop doing the things that are kind of eating us up. It's, we might make money on, on them, but they're, they're kind of eating us up inside. Let's give all of our employees raises. We'll call it insurance. We let's we want them happy. We want them producing. And I said, let, we need to take more time for ourselves. And so that's kind of, we're on that path right now. Yeah. We're just kind of like, I said, we need to ride more often. You and I need to take more trips. I need to get back in touch. You kind of go full circle because you get lost for a little bit mm-hmm. um, where you're just like, okay, we have this thing. It's a real thing. And this could be, this is retirement stuff. This is like, this, this, this could be it. This, this is, this is a tangible thing. And we've, we've built a brand and I've yeah. had huge companies like to tell, like, I mean, I was talking to, um, Spurgeon Dunbar from Revzilla guy, yeah. you know, the other day I've become friends with him. I've never met him, but when we talk on the phone, we we're like, we're best friends. And, and even from him, he's like, you've created this awesome brand, you know? And, yeah. and he's like, that's really important. He's like, you've done really well there. And, and so we, we just had this thing that was this brand and it was growing and it was on fire and we were just fanning it, fanning it, but kind of killing ourselves in the process. Um, yeah. But we've got it up to a point now where we've got great employees. They're all treated well. Um, they're all happy. I've had people come in and ask us like, where do you, where do you find your employees? I'm like, why? It's like, they all seem really happy. Like we can't keep our employees as happy. We're always dealing with problems. And I go, you know, we just, we just kind of tweaked the way we're doing things. We invested more in them and held them accountable. Um, and, and there's a really awesome culture here. And I think it comes out, you know, we have people, it comes out on the phone when you talk to our people and we've, a lot of our employees, they ride and we just have this cool, this really cool culture. You know, I read, it was actually Spurgeon that told me to read a book called delivering happiness. And it was by written by a guy named Tony Heisch who started Zappos. Zappos. Yeah. And he sold it to Amazon for $30 $30 billion when he was mm-hmm. like 30 years old or whatever it was. But his big thing throughout the book was culture, culture. And they had like these kiosks all over Zappos where you had to type in a code to access this kiosk. They were always locked. And they, they had so many programmers there. They had these developers. And what they did is they, the way to, to, to uh, get into the, the kiosks and the code was it would flash a random picture of a coworker and you had to know their full name. That was the code. No, oh, that's awesome. And so that was their big deal. Yeah. And and so he was really heavy on culture. And when they decided to move from San Francisco to Las Vegas to be more central, 
and get out of California, they were very concerned that a lot of their employees would not move with them um, mm-hmm. and they would have to start over from scratch and do all this training. Something like 79% of them moved because they realized that all their friends, their culture, there was, was their where people were yeah. their coworkers. Yeah. You know, that, so they had a, it was very successful for them to move because they had that culture. And so we, we've always kind of embraced that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have a really good culture here and, and it, and it, it, I think it, you hope it bleeds out in the business you yeah. know, over time, you know, and I think it does. It, it brings me to my last question, which is um, a perfect segue. I I remember reading an article about Buckknife, uh, who used to be a, a Southern California made in the USA company. And they got to a point where they're manufacturing, not, you know, all kinds of knives in California. And I, I assume using similar equipment to, to what you, what you have. And they finally said, look, it's unsustainable given, you know, the electricity rates and how much power this stuff draws. And, and I think they moved their facility to Idaho. Mm-hmm. Do you ever worry about that as you, as you scale this company? Like, good Lord, this, you know, the, the cost of, of Southern California is just eating you alive. And yeah, I think, I think Buck had like 80% of their employees choose a relocation package to Idaho. Um, well, you know, um, see concepts did that. They moved to Idaho and I talked to him at the KTM rally. I go, how did that work out for you? And he said, the thing that I didn't realize is that um, he said the workforce there is there's a, there's a big workforce here. And he says the workforce there, mm-hmm. if somebody doesn't have a job, there's usually a reason. Mm-hmm. So he struggled with the workforce for a while. Um, and I think he's overcome it and I think he's got some good employees, but it, it, it wasn't as easy as he thought for me. My home is California. Um, I own my home. I actually bought my parents' home. My mother passed away 13 years ago and my dad was too old to live in a two-story home and it's a block from the beach. And so I bought it from him. Um, and I was able to get prop 13, which means my taxes are extremely Taxes low. don't go up. Yeah. Yeah. My, my taxes are about one tenth of what my neighbors are and they all hate me for it. But things like that help. Um, the truth of the matter is for us to, California is my home. All the industry is right here. Mm-hmm. Everything is here. Southern California, it is the heart, the beating heart of the motorcycle industry, probably in the world. Yeah. Um, especially moto, uh, moto and enduro and that sort of thing. I mean, pro circuits here, FMF's here, White Brothers was here, and it's all here. Yeah. Um, it's close to Mexico, which I love. Um, my home has been here. I live and own the home that I grew up in. I bought the house next door to me for my dad to pay him back. And now he's living in that house. He's 89. He's still independent. He was an air force pilot. So we own the house next to us, but for us to ever move this, this company, it would probably take us a decade or more to recoup the cost. It would cost a quarter million dollars just to move. And it's not, not a thing. You got more positives than negatives. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't affect me that much. It's I love it here and we'll never go anywhere. We, we like it here and, we're staying. Well, Chris Parker, Rottweiler Performance, thank you a ton for coming on the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. It was a blast to talk to you. Uh, I wish welcome. you all the best or continued success uh, with Rottweiler Performance. I know uh, you have a loyal customer in, in Terry and me and uh, a lot of the guys that we ride with. So all, all the best you. to you. Thank you very much for your time and, and have me on here. It's very flattering. And, and thanks for letting me uh, talk for an hour, however long, an hour and 15 and Go on and on, but uh, hopefully it wasn't too belabored. But uh, it was awesome. Thank you very much. Enjoyed talking awesome. to you guys. Appreciate it. I like doing these. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Adventure Motorcycle USA podcast. For more information about this episode or to learn more about Adventure Motorcycle USA, please visit AdventureMotorcycleUSA.com.